welcome everybody. Today is Tuesday, February 22nd, and on Tuesdays we have Mr. Dwaskin presenting his In the Headline lecture series. So Mr. Dwaskin, the floor is yours. Hi everybody, thank you, Angela. Um, for people who are uh, super into numbers and things like that, you all probably realize that today is um, uh, 22-2, 22-22. So you've got um, like uh, seven twos all in a row. And, um, you know, uh, the second month, the, the, the 22nd day of this, of the second month of the of 2022. So we'll have to wait 1111 more years before we get to three, three, um, 33, 33. So you know, enjoy it while you can, because you ain't going to see the 3333. Um, because of this week's news events, uh, I decided uh, to speak again about the, um, the well, let's now call it some kind of a war in the um, in Eastern Europe in Ukraine. And I know I spoke last time uh, a couple of, couple of weeks ago about Ukraine itself and the history of the country. And today I want to just concentrate on the actual uh, sort of situation and the immediate antecedents of that, as well as uh, speaking about the, um, the uh, method or the strategy that Putin has uh, in um, carrying out his foreign policy. Um, uh, as I was saying, Putin has been in power now since the year 2000. So he's actually been in power in Russia um, for 22 years. Um, Russia as an independent uh, sort of non-communist country only started nine years before that. So pretty well for the most of the life of the new Russia because Russia's name was changed as a country only in 1991, Putin has been in power for most of it, either as president or prime minister um, you know, he, he, gamed, he gamed the system because uh, let's say the president was only allowed to serve two terms. He then became prime minister and then he went back to being president because, you know, he, 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 he uh, could start all over again. So uh, he is definitely a force to be reckoned with and uh, the world is now standing up and watching and waiting and uh, trying to... Um, figure out uh, where this all may end and what the world, both friend of Russia and foe of Russia, what should they do about it? Um, so what happened yesterday was that Russia recognized the so-called People's Republic of Donetsk and the People's Republic of Luhansk. So I'm sure none of you have ever heard of these People's Republics. Uh, they don't exist in any formal way recognized by any other country except Russia. They're not members of uh, any World Trade Organization or the United Nations or anything else in Europe. Um, these are parts, one third, about one third of two Ukrainian provinces of the same name. And these uh, two provinces in the Ukraine are located in the far Eastern part of the country bordering with Russia. Um, the so-called People's Republics of Donetsk and Luhansk 
are the easternmost parts of these two easternmost provinces in the Ukraine. So they're touching Russia and um, the, uh, the, just the names, People's Republic, that they call themselves, of course, harks back to the days of the Soviet Union when you had the People's Republic of, um, of just about every um, uh, Soviet state that there was. People's Republic of Lithuania and the People's Republic of Ukraine and people's, etc. So People's Republic in those times meant that they were controlled by the Communist Party and uh, the, the sort of people who took control there under Russian supervision, just like the idea of having a People's Republic because it sounds good and that's how they named those places. Um, uh, how they became to be People's Republics is that Putin sent in um, Russian militia and uh, sort of off the books Russian soldiers to start a revolution against the Ukraine uh, to, uh, to find local militia in the areas to fight with them. And uh, they then took over power and declared themselves to be a people's republic. So it wasn't as if something happened organically from those places by themselves. It was Russia that started it by sending Russian troops over the border, but not, but not wearing Russian uniforms disguised as, as, as pr private so-called, um, uh, what would you call them, private insur insurgents, something like that. Um, all the weapons, of course, in this insurgency came from Russia. All the uh, leadership came from there. So pretty well, Russia ended up taking over the eastern part of the two easternmost provinces in um, the Ukraine. Um, the original plan probably was to take over the whole provinces, but the Ukrainian military and the army fought back and um, fought back pretty hard. And uh, Russia did not feel it was worthwhile at that point to spend extra lives and money to take over the whole provinces. Now, um, previous to that, uh, these provinces uh, on the easternmost part of the Ukraine uh, were Russian speaking as opposed to Ukrainian speaking. Uh, during the period of uh, democracy in the Ukraine, they all voted for the Russian speaking party uh, running for elections in the Ukraine. Uh, and at certain points, this Russian speaking party did win the whole election in the Ukraine and its leader became the president of the country. Uh, of course, under that circumstance, Mr. Putin was very happy to have what we might call a stooge in power in Ukraine. And um, uh, that sort of fulfills his, his uh, dream or his vision of having a kind of a united front of the three Slavic republics namely Belarus, Russia, and the Ukraine, all under the Russian uh, leadership or under the Russian control. Uh, so right now he has the Belarus under his own control because of course he saved Mr. Lukashenko from being uh, thrown out uh, during the revolution uh, last year. 
Um, and uh, while uh, Mr. Yanukovych was in power in the Ukraine, he, he actually sort of had his dream come true. But, uh, you know, as we'll say later on, this Mr. Yanukovych, the Russian-speaking president of the Ukraine, was tossed out. Uh, he fled to Russia. And the opposition took over, which were Ukrainian, much more Ukrainian nationalists, and against uh, Russian influence in the Ukraine. Um, the, the people, though, who were living in those provinces never uh, wanted to be taken over by Russia. So their, their situation was that they were, uh, so long as they were a, a sort of a protected minority in the Ukraine, um, and so long as the border was open with Russia, uh, they didn't necessarily want to be taken over by Russia. Um, the reason being that uh, Ukraine was a democratic country. Uh, Ukraine was a country which had ties to Europe. And, uh, you know, Russia was not a democratic country. And Russia was a place where you could get put in jail for saying the wrong thing or, or for um, uh, insulting the wrong person. Uh, etc. So uh, basically, that was the situation until the invasion happened. Um, uh, the um, so uh, it was in um, some of the the key kind of year, the key year of this whole little drama here was in 2014, because that's when the, um, there was the overthrow of the Russian-speaking pro-Russian president in Ukraine. And um, in that same year, uh, not uncoincidentally, Russia took over the Crimean Peninsula from the Ukraine. So this is in a completely different area. The Crimean Peninsula was part of the Ukraine until Russia completely annexed it in 2014. That, is, that peninsula is located in the Black Sea. It's uh, the Ukraine's only uh, access to the sea and it's Russia's only warm water access to the sea. Um, as opposed to the uh, annexation in Eastern Ukraine, when Russia took over Crimea, by and large, the people were in favor of it. Uh, the, the area there was more than 80% Russian speaking. Um, and uh, Crimea as a whole was never, never historically Ukrainian. There were almost no Ukrainians living there. Um, and it had no historical ties to Ukraine at all. Uh, in the Crimean Peninsula, it was a Muslim ruled, uh, a Muslim ruled uh, sort of state until the Russian Empire took it over in the 1700s. And um, the Crimea was only transferred to the Ukraine in 1954 when Khrushchev uh, was the Secretary General of the Communist Party. And he wanted to do something uh, to sort of uh, win over the Ukrainians' loyalty uh, after the Second World War. So uh, Russia did sort of two two um, annexations, one of the Crimea, one of the Crimea, Crimea 
and the other one of the uh, those uh, parts of those provinces in eastern Ukraine. So they expanded in sort of two directions, and both times against the Ukraine itself, taking territory from the Ukraine. Um, the um, the uh, when 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 this takeover occurred, um, the one in the Ukraine anyway. Uh, almost all the people stayed, and uh, the only people who left were the, the main group of people who left the Crimea were uh, the Muslim minority who was there, um, who had always been suspect by the uh, Soviet authorities, and um, so they moved into the Ukraine, um, you know, as refugees. Uh, when Russia took over the, those two republics, Luhansk and Donetsk, there were many Ukrainians who moved uh, west because, um, uh, and this would include both Russian speakers and, and non-Russian speakers, uh, simply because they didn't want to live on the front lines uh, anymore. Uh, th those areas were sort of still unstable. Uh, there was sort of military actions going on all the time. Uh, some Russian-speaking people went to Russia. The uh, Russian government gave hundreds of thousands of them uh, Russian passports, so they were able to go to live in Russia. And uh, other ones uh, went to the Ukraine and had family there. And still other ones just stayed to where they were until this very day in those uh, sort of people's republics, we'll call them, of of uh, Donetsk and Luhansk. Um, uh, the, um, the, uh, as I said, that the, the ones who, who left to go to Ukraine were people who uh, appreciated the democracy in the Ukraine, even though by and large, the sort of standard of living in the economy was better in Russia than it was in the Ukraine. There were many people who said, you know what, we value our freedom more than we value uh, a few extra dollars a month for our pensions. And uh, so, um, so many of them left to move to other Russian speaking parts of the Ukraine, like uh, the big city of Kharkov, which is uh, the biggest Russian speaking city in the Ukraine. Uh, uh, one and a half million people were displaced by the fighting uh, in those small little territories. Uh, so uh, they moved uh, one direction or another, and uh, so it was really quite a, uh, you know, quite quite a significant event in, in the lives of the people there. Um, uh, the the um, the uh, invasion, of course, uh, in twenty fourteen also pushed the Ukraine closer to the West. In other words, the Ukraine is afraid and still is afraid that Russia might take over the whole place. And so, um, uh, you know, there's always been two directions in Ukrainian politics, one toward the East and one toward the West, but this invasion really pushed people toward the West, towards wanting to become members of NATO, to have a sort of a collective security agreement and naturally, Russia doesn't want that because they say, well, you know, if Ukraine joins with NATO, then it, it means that the West is on the Russian doorstep. But it was Russia's own doing that pushed them in that direction. 
Now, let's just go back a little bit uh, to see where the roots of the problem come from. And um, uh, the, the, um, uh, um, when, when uh, of course, when the czar was in power back, you know, before 1917, and there was no democracy, uh, the Russian government really didn't care about minority rights, and they didn't care about what people thought of them. And uh, when the Soviet revolution happened, it didn't remember happen overnight. It took uh, the Soviets uh, three or four years to consolidate their power. And in the meantime, they tried to win some kind of public support from the uh, people that they were ruling. And um, especially this was for where people were not Russian. So in other words, when, when the czars were in power, they imposed the Russian language and they even imposed the Russian Orthodox religion on all of their um, uh, subjects. And the Soviet Union tried to contrast that. They said, okay, what we're gonna do is we're gonna recognize the sort of um, uh, ethnic and religious, no, not religious, but the ethnic and the linguistic differences among all the different components of the Soviet Union. Uh, in order to create sort of support for the revolution. And so when the um, Soviet Union was created, they created uh, 15 and later 16 so-called republics. That's where they got this name, uh, People's Republic of Luhansk. So the Soviets cr created 15 and later 16 uh, republics, which somehow or other, the, the sound of it sounded as if they were all independent, uh, just joining with the Soviet Union voluntarily, which of course was not the case. They were really, uh, we'll call them provinces that were centrally governed from the, the uh, Moscow uh, with a kind of a veneer of, um, uh, a veneer of national self-government um, in every capital uh, of the, those different republics. Um, so, you know, they, they, they were called Soviet socialist republics, but they weren't Soviet, they weren't socialist, and they weren't republics. So, so Soviet, it means, you know, run by a local council, which they weren't. Socialist, they were not socialist, they were communist. And republic, they weren't a republic because they weren't self-governing, they weren't independent. And um, so, you know, in a certain way, the whole union of Soviet socialist republics was all uh, uh, sort of a fiction imposed by the Communist Party there. Um, just like the German Democratic Republic, uh, you know, or East Germany, they used to say it's not German, it wasn't democratic, and it wasn't a republic. Same idea, basically. Uh, but by giving um, recognition to local cultures and languages uh, under communism, uh, they gave people a sense of identity that they didn't have under the czarist uh, regime. Uh, but the religious part of that identity, that definitely was, was uh, put down. So the communists didn't want any kind of alternate source of power from the people, uh, from uh, their religious authorities, whether they were even Russian Orthodox or uh, obviously uh, Muslim uh, or Jewish or, or, or other, other Christian. 
Um, they just about controlled, uh, they just about closed all the different churches um, and, and the ones they left open, uh, you were completely suborned by the Communist Party and the, the church officials that worked there, uh, you know, their loyalty was to the Communist Party in the first place. And that's how they managed to run uh, those republics for all those years that they were around. Now, when Stalin took over, <clears throat> In 1924, so remember that the Soviet Union was created in 1917, and there were really three years of civil war, and things really didn't settle down until 1921. But Lenin died in 1924, so really Stalin was the sort of um, founder, in a certain sense, of the communist uh, system of government in the Soviet Union. And he had a very interesting strategy of adjusting borders. And he wanted to adjust the borders of the different republics and even of the sort of sub provinces inside those republics to make sure that they were not ethnically homogeneous. So he didn't want the idea, for example, that all the Ukrainians in the country should be in the Ukraine or uh, let's say, for example, all the Uzbeks in Uzbekistan should, should be in Uzbekistan, or uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So he always made sure when the boundaries were drawn that there was a, within each republic, there were strong minorities. And outside of those republics, there were the minorities that could have been in the republics, but they were left outside. And um, that was to ensure loyalty and uh, if necessary to create tensions um, within, within those republics should any problems arise. Um, Stalin also has his favorites and non-favorite places. Unfortunately for the Ukrainians, Ukraine was, was considered to be non-favorite by Stalin. Uh, and um, this was always because of the sort of fear that the Ukrainians would not be completely loyal to the Soviet Union. The resistance uh, by the Ukrainians to the communism was very strong um, after they took over. Uh, and um, he, he, what, what he did was in that sense, was he, he drew the boundaries of the Ukraine to include these Russian speaking areas so that um, if ever problems would arise with Ukrainian nationalism, he could always um, mobilize those Russian speakers uh, against the Ukrainian sort of leadership, which is exactly what this plan worked out, but it didn't work for Stalin, it worked for Putin. But the plan was dreamed up by uh, Stalin back in the 1920s and 30s, just to give you an idea of sort of how it ended up in that way. Um, now, Georgia, the Georgian Republic, was one of Stalin's favorites, obviously, because he himself was Georgian, um, although uh, he had a lot of differences with the sort of, uh, we'll call it the local Georgian leadership and certainly with the Georgian uh, church. Um, so what he did was he added some parts to Georgia uh, that didn't have Georgian in them. Um, uh, and that later turned out to be kind of a gold mine, again, for Mr. Putin. Um, 
In Central Asia, uh, there were lots of minorities that were spread around the different republics. And uh, for example, uh, Kazakhstan uh, was a republic that, uh, that uh, had uh, only 40% Kazakhs living in there and other peoples, including Russians, formed the rest of the people. Um, so, uh, you know, that was the whole idea, to mix things up, uh, to create possible, um, let's say, uh, areas of loyal people against a majority or, or uh, of having majority people against minorities. It was a, a way to sort of balance things out and hold control. And that was the, the plan that was dreamed up by Stalin way back, way back when. At the end of the Second World War, uh, Ukraine was expanded because uh, Poland, the country of Poland was uh, taken over. The whole Eastern part of Poland was taken over by the Ukrainians and the uh, Poland's borders expanded westward to take over parts of Germany. So Poland kind of moved the country, the, the, the borders moved, the country is still there, but the borders is, the Poland, pre-war Poland is not the same as post-war uh, Poland. So for example, uh, the city of uh, Lvov or Lviv as they call it, uh, today is in the Ukraine, but was once one of the major cities in Eastern Poland. And today it's a major city in Western Ukraine. Um, when when uh, Ukraine was expanded uh, after the Second World War, all those territories in the Western part that were added into the Ukraine were never part of the Soviet system or the communist system. So the people who lived there only became Soviet citizens sort of after 1945. And needless to say, their roots uh, were in the Ukrainian uh, nationalism. Uh, they, many of them resisted the Soviet uh, invasion of the Ukraine, um, you know, uh, as a counteroffensive to the Germans. There were some uh, Ukrainians that fought with the Germans against the uh, Soviets in 1944 when the Soviets counterattacked. And uh, in addition, uh, many of these Western Ukrainians were Catholics uh, because when Poland was ruling the uh, territory, they sort of imposed Catholicism uh, or, or introduced Catholicism to the upper classes who became uh, Ukrainian Catholics. Um, and uh, everyone in Western Ukraine spoke Ukrainian and not Russian. Um, so in that way, there was, there was a natural division in the Ukraine between starting in the far West, the most anti-Russian uh, group and then starting in the Far East, the most pro-Russian group, and in the middle, which is Kiev, uh, the capital, was kind of a mixed, uh, you know, mixed um, between the two sides. Um, the uh, tactic of using sort of local pro-Russian militias didn't start in the Ukraine. It actually started in Georgia, that's why I, spoke about that uh, to start with. So in 2003, there was what was called the Rose Revolution in uh, Georgia. So Georgia is a province uh, or one of the republics 
uh, of the former Soviet Union in the Caucasus uh, Mountains uh, and on the Black Sea. So Georgia is part of uh, the three Caucasus republics, uh, Georgia, Armenia, and Azerbaijan. And um, uh, the leader of Georgia after the uh, independence and the Soviet Union broke apart was the same leader who was in charge of Georgia before that, Mr. Shevardnadze. He was pre, pre, probably one of the number two men in the Soviet Union under Brezhnev. And uh, he took over the country when the Soviet Union broke apart. Um, but, uh, you know, in, in, in the eight years of independence, Georgia did not advance much. Uh, of course, all of the all lives in all of the former Soviet republics fell, the standard of living fell, Russia is the same thing, they all, you know, things fell apart. Uh, factories closed, jobs were lost, um, people didn't know what to do. There was no um, sort of investment to get the countries moving again. Uh, often uh, sort of political leaders and other oligarchs took over any of the resources that were left in the country and kept it for themselves. So, you know, it took 10 years when the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991 for things to start to slowly climb back to even the level that they were before the Soviet Union fell apart. And uh, Mr. Shevardnadze, like many of his uh, colleagues, tried to hold on to power as much as he can, could. And uh, when they had elections, uh, he tried to manipulate the elections just the way Mr. Lukashenko did uh, of the Belarus uh, you know, last year. And people just revolted after one of these fake elections in uh, 2003. They brought, the opposition brought roses to the parliament and that's why they call it the Rose Revolution. The army was called on by Shevardnadze to put down the, the revolution, but they refused. And so a pro-Western government was installed. Now, <clears throat> what happened after that was that um, uh, Russia was, of course, extremely unhappy with this uh, revolution. And um, they, um, they, the, the small area that was given over to um, Georgia by Stalin, uh, the Russians used that area to start a war against Georgia. Uh, they, they, in other words, said, they sent militias in. They said, well, this area doesn't want to be part of the new Georgia. And uh, they used the same playbook as they used in, um, uh, you know, in the Eastern uh, Republic, the Eastern provinces of the Ukraine. Um, they, uh, a war broke out. Georgia lost. Uh, the two, two regions became controlled by Russia. Russia recognized and was the only country who recognized the independence of these two regions. And, um, uh, and, uh, and that's what happened. And all of this happened when Putin, you know, Putin took over in 2000. So these wars were started shortly after that. One was in 2003, one was in 2008. Um, you know, they created fake people's militias back with Russian weapons and Russian soldiers not in uniform. 
So this was the sort of Georgia, the Georgia, we'll call it the um, template or example of how to infiltrate a neighbor by using, uh, by using um, local supporters of Russia to sort of invite the Russian forces into the country. Now, another area of conflict, another area that's just like this, where conflict hasn't quite broken out yet, is a place called Transnistria. And uh, Transnistria is part of the country called Moldova, which in itself is another whole story of a kind of an artificial country. But uh, Moldova was one of the Soviet republics uh, at the time. So uh, when the Soviet Union broke apart, Moldova by, by definition became an independent country. Um, but uh, Moldova, which is the smallest and poorest uh, really uh, part of the Soviet empire, it's right on the border with Romania. And the people who live in Moldova are Romanian speaking people but there is a river that runs uh, kind of in the eastern uh, part of the country, uh, the Nistria River. And on the other side of that river are Russian speaking people who moved there somehow, you know, uh, through the czarist years. And this part of the country did not want to be part of Moldova at all. And they declared their independence from Moldova. Um, uh, when Moldova became an independent country. Now, of course, Russia recognized this so-called independence, uh, the independent uh, Republic of Transnistria. And uh, up until for, for, for years, in other words, for 30 odd years, it's been this kind of an island in a way uh, where Russians send their forces, uh, where they use the Russian money uh, where they speak Russian. And on one side of this country is, is Moldova. Uh, and on the other side is uh, Ukraine. So it's almost like a Russian enclave in the middle of Southern Europe, where uh, there is a huge amount of Russian forces now stationed. So when you look at how Ukraine is surrounded by the Russian troops, you have the Russian troops, of course, on the east, uh, in north of Ukraine is Belarus, and um, Putin sent uh, thousands and thousands of troops into Belarus, uh, practically without asking the, the uh, president of Belarus. Uh, and certainly the president welcomed those troops because it was Putin who saved him from his own revolution. So on the north side and on the east side, um, uh, Russian troops are there. But now on the west side, where Transnistria is, is another, um, another deployment of Russian troops. So in a certain sense, Ukraine is almost surrounded on all sides. Uh, the very bottom is the, is the uh, Black Sea, where um, uh, the Russians have all kinds of naval forces over there. So in a certain you know, strategic sense, Ukraine is surrounded by Russians. Um, Uh, by the way, you know, the, the sort of uh, agreement to end the battle, the, the hostilities in Georgia, 
was mediated by the French President Sarkozy. And uh, just like now, Mr. Macron, the French president, is trying to kind of mediate the, um, the, uh, the dispute in, in the Ukraine. Um, so there are, there are some, some kind of enduring themes of this conflict. One of the themes is that Russia sees itself as the country who has to protect the interests of Russian minorities wherever they are. Russian, Russian people, uh, wherever they are, uh, Russian people who are on the borders with the former, uh, with Russia, uh, a part of the former Soviet Union. So during the time the Soviet Union existed and even before, Russian speaking people moved from Russia all over the place in order to pursue a sort of better lives. They, they moved to, um, to Central Asia. They moved to the uh, Caucasus Republics. They moved west into the Ukraine. And they also moved to the Baltic Republics. So all of these places had significant Russian-speaking minorities. And during the time that the communists were in power, these minorities uh, were, if not in charge of those republics, they were very powerful behind the scenes. When these republics became independent, of course, the Russian speakers lost their backing from Moscow, and many of them left and went back home, um, depending on their own individual situation. And many, of course, stayed where they were and just uh, tried to make a new life in these new independent countries. Um, but uh, this idea of protecting Russians living outside of the country um, is the sort of rationale that Putin is using to uh, invade these places. Uh, you know, in the first place, the so-called defend the rights of these Russian people. Um, you know, uh, that, that's, the, that's the explanation or rationalization of this whole, of this whole thing. Uh, now, significantly, in Latvia and in Estonia, the two Baltic republics, there's huge Russian-speaking minorities. People who came to live there, you know, both before communism and after communism. Um, and these were people who basically ran those places under the Soviet Union. But Latvia and, and, and Estonia are part of NATO. Uh, they have a democracy. They have a higher stand, much higher standard of living than Russia has. And the Russian people who live there, they, they, they want their rights as an ethnic minority, but they certainly don't want Russia to take them over. Um, but you know, needless to say, the, the leaders and the citizens of those republics are afraid that the Russia will use the um, uh, Russian minorities there as an excuse to invade and take over those places. Uh, Kazakhstan is another country with a large Russian-speaking minority. Uh, when it became independent, it was 40% Kazakh and 37% Russian. And of course, many of the Russians left after independence because they would, you know, they sort of automatically became the, the I won't call them second-class citizens, but they became not the power source uh, in, the new, in the new country. The president of Kazakhstan was very sort of intelligent at that time. And what he did was he paid Kazakhs living elsewhere 
to come to live in Kazakhstan. So this was a kind of a, a let's say, a demographic strategy to fill Kazakhstan with more Kazakhs so that the Russians would be outnumbered. And he did this by offering um, housing and offering school and offering other privileges to Kazakhs who would move, including Kazakhs who were living in China, which has, which has still a large Kazakh minority living in, in the uh, Xinjiang province. You know, we know of the Uyghurs, how they were the majority in the province, but there were always a large amount of Kazakhs living there also. Um, and then not only did the president of Kazakhstan bring them there, but he settled them in the areas where there were Russians living. So the Russians were living in the north part. He settled these newcomers in the north part. And so today there are only 17 or 18 percent of Russians living in Kazakhstan. And, um, you know, his, his, you know, he was thinking in advance that the Russians might try to pull the same trick that they're pulling in um, in the Ukraine to sort of protect the Russian speaking people. So by getting rid of the Russians and outnumbering them, it gives the Russians less, less excuse to, to try to invade. Um, so uh, the, um, uh, the uh, one of the ironies of this story is that when the Ukraine became independent, it had nuclear weapons. Uh, that were put there by the Soviet Union. And the world, you know, asked the Ukraine to give up these weapons, uh, and they did. They gave all the nuclear weapons up, but it was on condition that their sort of liberty and independence would be guaranteed, guaranteed both by Russia and guaranteed by the West. So now those guarantees are looking, you know, a little shaky because Russia itself is the one who is aggressing uh, over in the Ukraine. Um, and for sure, the West does not want to start a war with Russia. Uh, Ru the Ukraine is not part of NATO. Uh, there's no uh, treaty that says that the West has to go and protect the Ukraine. And that's one big reason why I don't think the Ukraine would ever become part of, part of NATO because you know, the West would know that they would have to commit themselves to uh, fight against Russia should, should uh, you know, uh, events ever uh, deteriorate in that way. Um, the so-called sanctions that uh, the West is putting on Russia are really more a formality than anything else. Um, Russia has an enormous amount of foreign exchange that they've saved up uh, during the period when oil and gas prices were high which is sort of now. Um, Russia uh, has uh, an, a world open market to sell their oil and gas, really their, their two biggest exports. Uh, I mean, in general, Russia, Russia's exports are all raw materials. So it's not just oil and gas, but uh, nickel, uh, aluminum and um, uh, wheat. Um, and uh, they have very little sort of high-tech exports uh, and, and really very little sort of um, industrial manufactured type exports. So it's raw materials, raw grains, um, uh, metals, etc. And, you know, there's a world market for this kind of thing. And China is, of course, the biggest uh, consumer 
of these products. Uh, China has no oil of its own and all, no, almost no gas of its own. Uh, and there's pipelines that are running directly now from Russia into uh, China via the Central Asian Republics. And, um, you know, uh, Germany said that they would not accept a Russian gas pipe through the new uh, Nord Stream pipeline, the pipeline that the Russians built at a cost of billions running from Russia directly to Germany under the Baltic Sea. And Russia did this in order to avoid the sort of problem of paying uh, other countries for transit fees, countries like the Ukraine or Belarus, uh, to transport the gas into Western Europe. So by building an undersea pipeline, they avoided all of these middlemen, uh, you know, each raking off a, a percentage. Um, and Germany, uh, on its part, was very happy to receive Russian gas. Uh, Germany is the largest country in Europe uh, outside of Russia industrialized country, they need all the energy. Uh, they again have, besides having some very low quality coal, they have no uh, oil or gas of their own. And um, so this was sort of a win-win in a way for both countries. But in order to stand with, uh, with their allies, um, uh, Germany said they would not uh, allow the pipeline to open. I just got a flash on my thing saying the Russians have sent soldiers there into uh, the Ukraine. And I think uh, Putin announced that he was going to um, send soldiers in order to sort of defend those places, keep the peace, etc. You know, he was sending peacekeeping soldiers to a place where um, he started a war in the first place. Um, so the sanctions which were announced on banks have become a lot more important than the sanctions on a few individuals um, uh, or on uh, Russian oil or gas. Because the banks are, are the way that countries transact business and the way trade is carried out and the way money is exchanged. And uh, should there be a sort of um, a boycott of Russian banks and Russian uh, transfer facilities, that would make life a little more complicated for Russia. Of course, money always talks. Uh, the Chinese have their own banks. The Chinese have offered the Russians to use Chinese money, uh, the yuan, as a means of foreign exchange. Uh, it's not the easiest thing in the world to change uh, Chinese money, but it's not that difficult either. So Russia does have its... Um, backup plans, uh, you know, should sanctions really take hold. Um, but uh, remember that sanctions are a two-way street. So if uh, the Europeans put sanctions on Russia, uh, they lose out because they need Russia for many different things, including its energy um, uh, sources, and also Russians as customers for European goods. So, um, uh, uh, it's, you know, uh, starting a sort of an economic war uh, sometimes ends up with um, uh, both sides losing and no side winning. Um, and uh, this is kind of something that the, the European powers are going to have to sort of figure out step by step and manage to make their way there.
Now, uh, the United States is uh, sort of seen as the biggest counterpoint to Russia. The United States has been in a period of isolationism for sure since Trump took over. Uh, Trump's basic belief was that the United States should not be involved uh, anywhere in the world where it would cost the US money uh, or anywhere in the world where the US does not have an immediate advantage for being there. And certainly uh, there are, there's consensus in the United States that they should not be uh, sort of the first boots on the ground to go and confront uh, Putin in the Ukraine. That being the case then, um, the Europeans on their own are not gonna go in to the um, fight a war against Russia in the Ukraine. And so uh, Putin realizes he has the upper hand here. And uh, it's just a question of, um, uh, you know, how will the rest of the world respond? Um, uh, the, uh, the, the sort of uh, question is, you know, the Russian people were in favor on the whole of the takeover of the Crimean Peninsula from the Ukraine. But I'm not so sure that the Russian people would be in favor of uh, the um, uh, sort of a long drawn out pitched battle between Ukrainian forces and Russian forces uh, in the middle of winter uh, over a kind of a uh, sort of, we'll call it, I won't say it's not strategic, but you know, Russia is so big, it's the world's biggest country already. Uh, why would the people of Russia see it necessary to take over more territory and make an enemy on its borders? So um, it's, uh, and, and not only that, but uh, Putin today, having been in power for 22 years, has sort of worn out his welcome. And the proof of that is by, uh, by arresting um, Mr. Navalny and uh, closing any kind of uh, critical so media sources, uh, he's proving how vulnerable he is and how weak he feels himself. So uh, the Russian people um, uh, would not automatically support him in, in, in this sort of an adventure that might uh, end up ending badly for Russia, certainly if Russian uh, troops start coming home uh, dead. Um, and if the standard of living end up, ends up getting cut. But as I said, uh, Russia has so much buffer, they've got so much money in foreign reserves that they can kind of wait out uh, a medium term uh, boycott of Russia simply by um, using up some of their foreign reserves to buy uh, whatever they happen to need. Um, uh, so, you know, the, 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 um, the, the, uh, the, the pundits are saying, what, what would the results of this sort of instability cause? And we already know that the world markets have taken a big drop since the tensions started going up in the Ukraine. Uh, the stock markets, certainly in the US and uh, Canada have dropped uh, from their highs uh, in the very beginning of January till now, they must be down close to somewhere around 10%. The, um, 
there is a possibility that the prices of oil and gas are going to go up because if Russian supplies are not available to Western Europe, then Western Europe has to buy it from somewhere else, uh, namely the US uh, or Africa. And uh, this extra demand will push up the prices for everybody. Um, so uh, at a time of rising inflation, when you uh, jump the cost of one very key ingredient, namely oil, which is used for transportation, so every, everything that's bought in, in, in our country and all around the world is brought there by somehow, by air, by plane, by, uh, by ship, by, by truck, by et cetera. So uh, raising the price of transportation raises the price of goods. So um, you know, adding to the inflation, which is already, uh, let's say, serious and nerve wracking, uh, jumping the price of uh, transportation would even add fuel to the fire, let's say. Um, uh, uh, but, you know, the, 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 um, there, there doesn't seem to be, you know, as is interesting, so interesting that, you know, the United States itself is such a divided country. And yet on this particular issue of world importance, uh, probably the most international tension the world has had since uh, quite a long time. Um, there doesn't seem to be any kind of real significant difference between the Republicans and the Democrats in the United States. Um, you know, they both want the U.S. to confront Russia, but they don't want the U.S. to actually lose uh, any, uh, any soldiers' lives or even to... Um, to make economic sacrifices in order to punish Russia. So, you know, I think uh, we're in for a period of tension. Um, I think that at some point or other, uh, this will get resolved. What Russia wants out of this is for the Ukraine to recognize its closeness to Russia, its dependence on Russia, uh, for Ukraine to never join NATO, for Ukraine to re-engage with this troika of Slavic states, namely, as I was mentioning before, Russia, Belarus, and Ukraine, that the, th the three countries under Russian guidance would sort of form one um, trading bloc, one political bloc, um, and Russia would be the boss of all those places. Uh, Russia would love to install a pro-Russian uh, dictator in the Ukraine on the model of Lukashenko in uh, Belarus. And he just hasn't found anybody yet who's, um, you know, uh, the last guy got kicked out and ran away. So they haven't come up with anybody else, but I'm sure they're grooming people, looking at people, plotting and figuring out how they can install one of their stooges in, um, in power in Kiev. Um, the Ukrainian people are, are ready to fight the Russians. Their, their army seems to be much more better prepared, but of course, overall way, way weaker in terms of um, amounts of uh, weapons and planes and, and everything else. Um, but uh, they seem to be determined to fight and not to surrender. Uh, so it's so ironic that the president of Russia uh, Mr. Zelensky 
uh, happens to be Jewish um, and happens to be quite popular. Um, and, 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 and again, maybe part of this whole uh, invention of this, of, this, of this tension is the fact that Mr. Zelensky was not able to be bought by Russia. He wasn't corrupt. Um, he wasn't a power hungry uh, politician. And, um, you know, uh, on the mold of the previous presidents of Russia, uh, of the Ukraine, sorry. And um, so uh, Russia found that they couldn't deal with him in the usual way. And so, you know, things just went from bad to worse in that sense. So um, I think pretty well that's an up to date explanation of these, uh, uh, you know, of this, uh, of this situation. And, um, you know, for people who were interested, uh, if you're reading the Israeli press, you have um, uh, a population in Israel of hundreds of thousands of both Russians and Ukrainians living in the same country. And so far, they haven't faced off against each other. Um, although uh, the Ukrainians there feel more pro-Ukrainian and the Russians feel pro more Russian, more pro-Russian. But um, they haven't faced off against each other, you know, abroad. And um, it's just such an interesting uh, phenomenon uh, there. So I'm going to, uh, yeah. uh, I'm going to stop and see if you have any, quite any uh, comments, questions about this. Um, uh, I can just add, of course, as we all know, that the uh, blockade that we spoke about last time, uh, you know, is more or less ended peacefully, um, that uh, there was nobody killed, that there was no shootings, um, there were no um, uh, looting, no vandalism, no arson. Um, it was, you know, I would say, uh, as Canadian, a standoff as you could get. Uh, people were politely asked to move, and they didn't move. They got uh, they got a uh, a law passed. Uh, the police used the law, gave plenty of warning, uh, did as minimal damage as they could. Um, our people were arrested, but left out on bail, except for the, the that one Tamara Leach who's still in jail. Um, so all in all, it was a pretty a pretty peaceful Canadian conflict. And, um, you know, that's the way conflict should take place in a certain way. Um, so, yeah, if you've got comments or questions, I'm ready to hear you. I don't see anybody yet, Mr. Dwoskin. We'll give them a minute or two. Yeah, sure. Let, let people, you know, uh, take a breath take a sip of a coffee if they're drinking any. Um, it's amazing that under this format that you could do two things at the same time. You can, you could be reading, you could be, uh, like I said, eat, drinking coffee, eating, and at the same time, enjoying, uh, enjoying a, uh, a lesson all at the same time. <clears throat> Thank mm -hmm. you.
And again, of course, like I often do, I repeat my invitation uh, to people who are listening. Uh, if you've got a subject that you'd like to hear about, just uh, email me or email Angela and, um, you know, uh, I'll be sure to try to research it and do a presentation on it uh, for another time. There's a million different subjects of interest that are floating around the world today, both political type of subjects and uh, environmental ones, uh, economic ones, um, cultural ones. And, uh, you know, uh, I'm open to all kinds of suggestions. So Mr. Dwarskan, I see that uh, Aviva wants to ask a question. Aviva, please unmute yourself. Yeah, you have to unmute yourself at the top of the uh, of your screen. You have to press that little unmute button. Okay, can you hear? Yeah, I, yeah, go ahead. I wanted to ask what the situation of the Jewish people is in Ukraine now. What the situation is? Of the um, Jewish people in Ukraine, they were once yeah. a very strong, big community. Well, uh, in general, um, they're not, they, one thing is for sure, they're not surprised by this action of uh, Putin. Uh, they've been uh, sort of uh, living under Soviet and Russian domination since 1921. Um, they suffered uh, tremendously in the Second World War, um, uh, you know, losing millions of people and, uh, you know, not just the Jewish population, but you know, millions of other ones, um, they were kind of second cousins to the Russians. And, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, they're happy being an independent country. Um, now, you know, uh, they, uh, whether they, it, it really is kind of up to Putin to decide what he wants. Um, he could, if he wanted to, march Sorry, Russian, yeah, march Russian troops right into Kiev and, and take over and take over the whole country. So he could do that, but he knows that if he did that, uh, you know, ninety percent of the of the Ukrainians would be against it. Uh, he would be like an occupying force. It would cost them tremendous amounts of blood and money. Um, and what would be the purpose of it in a certain sense? So for Putin, uh, you know, he's much a bully, a bully, which is what he is, never really likes to fight. They just like to intimidate. And I think that's what, that's where Putin is right at this moment. I don't think, you know, once he actually sends uh, troops into the Ukraine proper, because right now he's just sent them into those uh, so-called self-governing pro-Russian republics, which have basically been controlled by Russia, um, as I said, since 20, uh, what did I say, 2004, I think. Yeah, uh, I forget when did I say it was. Um, but, you know, they have been sort of under Russian rule for, you know, at least a dozen years already. So, um, uh, you know, in, in strategically then things haven't changed, but symbolically they have, because that is Ukrainian territory that Russia has now put their foot in. And no country has recognized the so-called these people's republics. So by definition, that means that every country recognizes 
that Russia now has forces on foreign soil. Um, uh, you know, uh, the Ukrainians are ready for a confrontation with Russia. They, they, you know, they know what Russia is all about. And um, uh, they also, uh, uh, at this point, seem quite united. Uh, the government seems to be quite united and, and doing a half decent job mobilizing the sort of morale of the people. They held a kind of a unification day last week where people were walking around with flags and singing songs and all that kind of thing. And, um, you know, so it's, it's, uh, it, it's up to Putin to decide how far he wants to push it. Okay, and there's a uh, Steve, please unmute yourself and ask your question to Mr. Dwoskin. Uh, hi, Steve. And uh, thank you, Aviva. Okay. Uh, hi, Hershey. You're able to hear me? Yeah. Okay, good. Okay, so to me, it looks like, uh, you know, nobody wants to fight a world war over Ukraine. Uh, the, uh, the rest of the Europeans uh, aren't willing to really step up and all that. Okay, so fine. So there isn't going to be any major uh, uh, confrontations, military confrontations over Ukraine. But what does China take away from this with regards to Taiwan? I think that's where the real danger is. Yeah, what is I was saying, what is Iran saying and uh, North Korea? Now, Iran and North Korea to a lesser degree than China. But what what is what what is China's calculus from all this? Um, yeah, that's a super uh, good point. I was reading about that today. Um, it, it seems now I don't know if it's true or not that China asked Russia not to invade during the Olympics in order to you know take attention away from the Olympics. Um, China might think that if the world uh, does not answer to the Russians in Ukraine, it won't answer to the Chinese taking over Taiwan. But obviously, the two uh, situations are really very, very different. Um, they certainly are different in the sense that the U.S. has uh, guaranteed Taiwan's independence, number one, that the Taiwanese forces have huge uh, military arsenal uh, behind them uh, that is sophisticated, that is, um, you know, uh, ready to fight. Um, one of the, one of the uh, weapons I think that we didn't mention yet is the whole cyber weapon. And um, uh, what Russia could certainly do and has tried already, uh, you know, to bring down the infrastructure of the Ukraine by cyber attacks. So, so that's a serious thing. And, and to do the same thing uh, to the rest of the world, you know, should they be objecting to what the Russians are doing? Um, China has never been closer to Russia, uh, you know, uh, until now. Putin and Xi are sort of, um, you know, uh, we'll call them uh, both autocrats, both uh, think a lot of themselves, uh, both leaders of powerful countries. Um, and, um, but Russia, on the other hand, is not as important to China as vice versa. So uh, Russia needs China more than China needs Russia. 
and um, uh, you know the the sort of general weakening and disorganization of the West is something that China can look at and say, you know what, um, you know we don't have to be so afraid of them because look at uh, they 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 you know they won't stand up to Russia, so they may not stand up to us, but the people of Taiwan for sure would, and I think. If China tried a military invasion of Taiwan, I think the, the demand in the United States would be to send uh, military forces, if not land troops, but certainly you know aircraft and all that to uh, try to fight off the Chinese. Okay, uh, I, I, I sort of see uh, Taiwan as a, um, more dangerous uh, prospect than uh, Ukraine, because uh, in Asia, we also have Japan. What will Japan do? Australia, uh, and even the, the Americans with, uh, you know, uh, navigation of the seas, free navigation, uh, freedom of navigation of, of the seas around Taiwan. Uh, and- well, America, uh, you- yeah, you know, the difference is that America has actual agreements with Taiwan that they would defend Taiwan. And that they didn't have any kind of agreement like that with the Ukraine. So they're not bound to do it. And not, no European country had an agreement with the Ukraine to defend them. So that's why, like you said, the stakes would be a lot higher if should China, China try to invade Taiwan. And... Um, uh, you know, they've managed so far by, uh, by diplomatically isolating Taiwan on the one hand, but between China and Taiwan, you know, there's an enormous amount of business that's going on, a huge amount of investment, a huge amount of jobs. Um, and I don't think that uh, either country wants to change that uh, situation. How would, a, how, would, how would America, particularly under a weak leadership, make it known, uh, I guess it would be, you know, diplomatically through back channels that, uh, look, Taiwan is not the Ukraine. Don't try anything. Uh, well, I mean, you know, they, 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 could certainly, they could certainly try to get that message across, but um, China knows it already. And... Um, like I was saying, you know, this company Foxconn, which assembles pretty well everything, they have a million employees in China. Uh, you know, that's a Taiwanese company. And uh, it's the largest foreign employer in China. So, you know, China would have to be taking quite a risk to try to just one day decide to, to uh, send all their forces in and take over the country. Because... Uh, you know, uh, they would have a lot more to lose than they would have uh, to gain in that in that way. And and Hershey, with regards to Ukraine, do you think that it was a mistake that the Americans pulled out their embassy staff so fast? Don't you think that they should have leave them there? I don't know. No, I really don't know. I, I heard Israel did the same thing. They they moved their embassy to Lvov. Um, I can understand, I, you know, the, 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 you know, some of the support staff family and whatnot, but to just, you know, pull out so quickly, uh, it, well, uh, it, the it, optics you know, of that are terrible. I agree with you because, you know, the optics of what they did in Afghanistan was terrible, even though 
you know, it was written on the wall that they were leaving, you know, long before they actually left. Um, when, when a country pulls its embassy or shuts its embassy down, it, it gives the host country the feeling that they're being abandoned. Right. And uh, that's not um, a great feeling for the country to have. Um, you know, and, and theoretically, uh, why would the Americans do that? Like their staff is not in danger staying in Kiev. Uh, even would, even, even let's say had the Russians invaded, they wouldn't have done anything to the American staff in, in the embassy there. Uh, you know, going back to Iran, that was different. Remember the, in Iran after the revolution, they actually did take hostages and prisoners uh, of the American staff in Tehran. But I mean, the situation is not the same. It wasn't not even close to being the same. Yeah. Not a, not the optics, like you said, are not good. Yeah. Okay. Thanks very much, Hershey. Okay. Thank you, Steve. Thanks for listening. You're welcome. Uh, so Mr. Dwaskin, there is a comment here by Hannah. It says, the Jewish Russians or the Jewish Ukrainians are not very fond of Ukraine. So I don't find it surprising that they are in agreement about the Russian invasion. Uh, no, the, the Jewish community living in the Ukraine today is very pro-Ukrainian. They are supporting the government there. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, they live in a free country, so they can kind of say what they want and do what they want. The uh, Jews living in Russia itself are, are not living in a free country and uh, they have to be careful of what they're, you know, what they're doing. There isn't, there, there have actually been some public demonstrations against, in Russia, against the invasion of the Ukraine. Um, but the people who do those demonstrations really are taking a risk of getting themselves uh, thrown in jail. Um, the, uh, the uh, like I was saying before in, in Israel, there's huge, and I mean enormous, million plus um, uh, Ukrainian and, and, and Russian uh, expat communities who, who live there. And, um, you know, uh, what unites them is they all don't want to see fighting going on in, uh, you know, in Europe. Um, and um, they, uh, uh, the Russian government has actually made quite a lot of effort to sponsor Russian media to be available in Russian for the Russian-speaking Israelis. And um, uh, there are uh, a lot of people in Israel who have strong sympathetic feelings to Putin among the Russian uh, Jewish community there. Um, and, uh, you know, but there, there hasn't been a kind of a, let's call it a mini civil war in Israel between Jewish Ukrainians and Jewish Russians. That hasn't happened. Anything else? I don't see anything else, Mr. Dwoskin. Okay. So thanks, everybody. Thank you. Thank uh, Angela. Thank everybody for listening, for tuning in, for participating. And um, please come back next Tuesday. We'll have a different subject to talk about, a different discussion to have. 
And, um, you know, I wish you all a happy uh, 2 uh, 2022. So we'll see you all next week. Bye. Thank you, Mr. Dwaskin, and thank you to everyone listening in over the telephone and through Zoom. We shall see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.